0: remain standing
1: for our scripture reading which comes this morning from the gospel of Luke chapter 24 verses 50 through 53. Jesus led them out as far as Bethany where he lifted his hands and blessed them. As he blessed them he left them and was taken up into heaven. They worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem overwhelmed with joy and they were continuously in the temple praising God. This is the word of God for us the people of God. Thanks be to God. If I can invite you to be seated please. This morning we're going to be continuing our look at the Apostles' Creed as it contains the building blocks of faith. And by repeating the creed and sharing in the creed, you and I each week declare the essentials of the Christian faith. And so over the past six weeks, we've gone line by line through the creed. And we've seen timeless beliefs that speak to us today in the same way that they speak to the very earliest Christians. So our statement of faith from the Apostles' Creed this morning is about the ascension of Jesus Christ. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. As I've spent time thinking about the ascension, and have spent time preparing this sermon, I honestly don't know if I've ever written a sermon specifically about the ascension of Jesus. And as I've got to thinking about it, in my trips to Israel, we visited sites that are associated with so many parts of Jesus' life. And there is a site associated with the ascension, but I'll be honest, it's kind of an afterthought, even after having visited there. It's pretty easy to overlook. There's these grand and beautiful places. This is the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem where Jesus was born. You know, you go through this church, and then you go down into the grotto underneath uh, the chancel area. And that's where the cave is, where Jesus is said to be born. Here's an interior picture of the Church of the Sepulchre, which is uh, where we believe that, that Jesus is, uh, Golgotha was, the mountain the church is built over, and then the tomb of Jesus was also there. And so there are these two very beautiful places, as you can see, and lots of people go, and there's lots of tradition associating with each of them. And then there's the Chapel of the Ascension, which is on the next slide. There you go. And so this is where people go to remember the ascension of Jesus. Now, I didn't take a lot of time to remember the history of it. It very well could have been destroyed during uh, one of the... the you know crusade christian muslim conquest or something like that but inside this this extremely small extremely plain chapel is this rock in the ground that they say is where jesus's right foot was as he ascended into heaven and so his footprint is still there but i think what it does show in in just comparing the differences in these structures is it shows us how we inadvertently and how easy it is for us to overlook the ascension of jesus christ as we think about how he came how he died how he was resurrected and then we don't say it really often um, say as much that he ascended into heaven as part of my uh, studies I've been reading this book by Timothy Tennant he's a professor at Asbury Seminary in Wilmore Kentucky and he uses an illustration on the events in Jesus's life that I think is helpful about the ascension so I'm just going to read how he sets it up and then I'll talk more about it he says picture the final game of world series each team has won three games. This is the final game. It's the bottom of the ninth. The home team's at the plate. The score is 7-4 to four against the home team. Although three runs behind, the home team's bases are loaded. At this point, there is no need for any seat in the stadium because everyone is on his or her feet cheering and screaming. The opposing team brings in the best closer. It's the bottom of the ninth. Two outs. Bases loaded. You know, everything you can imagine. The visiting team is one pitch away from winning the World Series. The crowd's standing up cheering, and then he says the name of the batter is Jesus. The pitch comes in, the swing, the crack of the bat, and within one second, everyone realizes it's a home run. But not an ordinary home run, but the game-winning grand slam. Can you picture what happens as he rounds the bases and finally comes into home plate? The whole team runs and greets him as he crosses home plate. Everyone jumps up and down rejoicing. A mound of bodies pile up on top one of another. Because that grand slam has won it all. Victory is secure, the game is won, and rejoicing can, can begin. And so we can say, what does this have to do with the Apostles' Creed? I like it because Tenet, Tenet presents it to us in a way that is really helpful by using the baseball diamond. Because it's presented in a way that includes the birth, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, but it also does not overlook the importance of the ascension as we look at the grand scope of God and His work in and through our lives through Jesus Christ. And so in His, in his example, if we use it, which it's helpful, it says, you know, Jesus' is, his birth is first base, and then His crucifixion is second base, and then the resurrection is the third base. But to hit the home run, you have to make it to home plate, Right? And so the ascension of Jesus is the home plate. See, I, here's where I think this is helpful. Because in my mind, and I think in, in the trend, or, or often when we think about it, is we want to make the resurrection of Jesus home, home base, don't we? And so we want to say when we talk about Jesus and when we talk about faith that, that the resurrection was it when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, when it comes to God's offering us salvation, when it comes to to God conquering sin. But see, the ascension is what proved once and for all that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was truly a resurrection and not just a resuscitation of his body like we looked at in in Lazarus' example and then other instances in the Old Testament last week. Is that in the ascension, Jesus accomplished the final part and the final victory over death and evil, because in the ascension he did not die, but he ascended into heaven. And so he didn't experience a second death. Like we read about in the story of Lazarus. Like we read about in, in other Old Testament passages of Scripture. Elijah you know, raised the, the widow of Nun's son. Um, Elisha raised a, a woman. But all of them died again, but the scripture tells us that Jesus did not die again, but he ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God who is the Father Almighty. And so when Satan or or evil was so certain that everything was over, Jesus hit uh, the metaphorical grand slam that brings us each home to God with him. And so in John's gospel, Jesus tells the disciples that he is going to ascend into heaven. This isn't just something that happened. Jesus has talked about it. He's pointed their eyes towards what's going to occur. He has let them know that, that this is coming and not to be surprised. Although, I'll be honest with you, even if Jesus would have told me I'm going to ascend into heaven and then I had seen it, I think I'd be surprised. I don't know about you, right? But John tells us that, that Jesus was telling them that, that this is part of God's plan. Which I think is helpful for us because as we look at it as Christians today and as we see everything else that occurred to Jesus and we see how all of these events are things that occurred according to God's plan, the ascension is along that complete line. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't a coincidence. It was God's plan and purpose in sending Jesus. And so John tells us this. Many times Jesus says he is going to go up to God. In John 16, 28, Jesus tells the disciples his purpose. And then he says, I left the Father and came into the world. I tell you again, I am leaving the world and returning to the Father. See, Jesus is pointing their eyes towards what will happen. He's telling them not to be surprised. But he's letting them know that this is not something that that is not part of God's plan. It's not something that, that is inadvertently going to occur. But it is what must happen. If you go and read the book of Hebrews, and we're not going to, I mean, we're going to gloss over it, but we can't spend a lot of time in it because the author of Hebrews spends a lot of time explaining in in the book of Hebrews who Jesus was and what it means for us as followers of Jesus to look to him. And and the author uses three different ways to, to describe why Jesus ascended or to talk about who Jesus is now as he sits in the right hand of God the Father. And so the first thing the writer of Hebrews does is says the reason Jesus ascended is so that he could be like a prophet who sits in the presence of God. Now we've read the Old Testament. You and I are familiar with some of the stories of the prophets that we might read. We know their purpose is to carry a message of God and to bring whatever message that was to the people that that God had laid on their heart to deliver the message to. After delivering the message, we would often, or we read the scripture and we see where the different prophets waited to see how people responded. We know some of them, they responded in a positive light and changed their life and their behavior. We know some of them, they did not. As I was thinking of this, there's an example that I thought of in the book of Jonah. Jonah's been charged to take the message of, of God to the people of Nineveh. Nineveh was a massive city, an important city, a city that was vast and, and great and mighty. And, and after being in the whale's belly, because Jonah has decided upon himself that, that Nineveh doesn't deserve to receive God's grace or God's message, uh, Jonah is traveling there after he's been in the, this whale's belly or fish's belly. He's traveled through the city. He's called the people of Nineveh to repent. The, the king has even heard his message, and he has dressed himself in sackcloth and is sitting in ashes and is doing all of the things that he's supposed to do to repent. But Jonah delivers this message, and then he goes to a hill and overlooks the city. Because, see, Jonah, in the role of prophet, is looking at this city, and he's saying they don't deserve this. They don't deserve this message. They don't deserve the opportunity to turn around. They don't deserve the, the chance to repent. And so in Jonah 4, 1 through 5, it says, God saw what they were doing, that they had ceased their evil behavior, the people of Nineveh. So God stopped planning to destroy them, and he didn't do it. Okay, so Jonah should be happy here. But it says, Jonah thought this was utterly wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, come on, Lord. Wasn't this precisely my point when I was back in my own land? This is why I fled Tarshish earlier. I know that you are a merciful and compassionate God, very patient, full of faithful love, and willing not to destroy. At this point, Lord, you may as well take my life from me because it would be better for me to die than to live. Jonah's a little ridiculous. He's waiting to see what's going to happen. In this instance, he feels like, Like everything that Nineveh has been doing, they deserve to be destroyed and he's a prophet who's waiting. And so Hebrews tells us that Jesus is like these ancient prophets. And the reason that Jesus sits in the presence of God, the reason that He ascended into heaven, is He now waits, like the ancient prophets waited, to see how you and I and how the people of earth choose to respond to His message. He's waiting to see how we respond, how we respond to His grace and forgiveness. He's waiting for the full victory of salvation that, that He has been offered to each of us to be received. But here's the good thing, is because it's a final victory. And so Jesus is waiting... And he's waiting with joy. He's not waiting like, like Jonah was waiting with, with anger and frustration and, and wanting to, to see it happen. Jesus is waiting with us, for us with joy so that we might have the victory just like the prophets of old called the people to repentance. He now waits with joy as you and I discover the victory and the salvation that he offers to each of us as we change our lives and as we grow into who God wants us to be. There is nothing in Jesus' heart but joy for that. Another part that that the, the book of Hebrews talks about why Jesus ascended into heaven is so that he could be our new high priest. If you read in chapters 6 and 7, it's long, so I'm not going to read it. But, but the author of Hebrews writes about, about how Jesus is, is fulfilling this Old Testament priesthood that we read about in the book of, of Exodus, about how God established a holy priesthood who were to be set apart in service to him. And so from the Old Testament, we know that the high priests were to be descendant of Aaron, the brother of Moses. Other priests were to be from the tribe of Levi. And the role of the priests were to offer sacrifice in the temple, to conduct worship, to care for the temple, to distribute um, um, money and assistance to those that needed help. We know according to the Old Testament that only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies and be in the very presence of God to offer the sacrifice each year on the Day of Atonement. Hebrews tells us that Jesus does more for us as the new high priest than the Old Testament priests ever did. Hebrews tells us that Jesus sits in the presence of God because His priesthood is from God alone. It did not depend on who He was or who He was related to. This means that His priesthood is permanent. He can't be made or unmade high priest. He's high priest forever. And because He's high priest forever, He sits in the presence of God forever. Hebrews tells us how and why Jesus offers more and does more for us as the new high priest. He didn't have to prove who he was because his power comes from God and God is indestructible. Jesus' sacrifice and the sacrifice that he offers as the high priest is the final one. Because we know that Jesus was referred to as as the, the, the Lamb of God in the book of Isaiah, and we know that as the Lamb of God, He was offered on the cross as a forgiveness for your sins and for mine, out of God's love for us, and He sits in the presence of God so that we can always know that that happens. Finally, the last thing that the Hebrews talks about is it says that Jesus is King. He's the King. And so when he sat down at the right hand of God, he has a specific place in relation to God, meaning that Jesus did not accidentally go up into heaven. And so he sits in this place, this place of honor where he intercedes on our behalf. You don't need a priest or someone else to be a middleman or woman to take your message, your prayers, your forgiveness, your, your anything to God because Jesus has already taken it for you. And so he rules, and he reigns over over all things, like God himself. And he's sovereign, and he has all power, he has all glory, he has all majesty that you and I can offer to God. And so Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2, when he talked about the sovereignty of Jesus, he says that every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, Paul is saying, not just that Jesus ascended into heaven, but he is giving him that, that ability or, or the, the exact comparison and saying that, that he sits on the same level of God himself when it comes to who he is and what he is and what he continues to do for us. See, when Jesus rose and when he ascended into heaven, he reassumed who he was as a part of the Trinity. As we read about him in the book of Genesis, as we think about how Jesus has been active throughout all of history, and when he returns to the presence of God, then he sent the third part of the Trinity, the gift of the Holy Spirit. So what does this mean for us? See, whenever we talk about the ascended Jesus, what we are talking about is a Jesus who is always with us. Meaning that Jesus is wherever you are. Meaning that when he ascended from here, he made himself available for everywhere. See, one of the great um, conflicts in the church that we've talked about was the divinity and the humanity of Jesus. And there were those that were saying that that Jesus could only be fully divine because then he could appear wherever he wanted to. But see, we know from Scripture that that's not what Jesus was able to do until the resurrection. But we know that because he ascended to heaven, then he has made himself available to you and to I, wherever we pray to him, wherever we look to him, wherever we we lift our hearts to him. Because the ascension of Jesus brings the full power of his incarnation and of his death home. And see, Jesus ascending into heaven is what sets up the next thing in the Apostles' Creed, which is where we talk about the work of the Spirit. And the way that God has chosen and promised to always be with us. Because He is omnipresent. Because Jesus is ascended. And because the Holy Spirit is the gift that He's offered to each of us. So this morning we celebrate Holy Communion. Remembering that God gave us the gift of His Son Jesus. Remembering that Jesus, when He was resurrected, He did not die again. And celebrating the gift that God gives us on, his, on our behalf out of his love for each of us.